everyone, this is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. Today, I'm speaking with Dave Weisberger, co-founder and CEO of CoinRoutes. Should be an exciting conversation, so let's dive right in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back. I am your host at 2BitIdiots. And we got another uh, exciting conversation today with Dave Weisberger, who's the co-founder and CEO of CoinRoutes. We're going to talk about smart order routing, institutional interest and entrance into crypto, uh, and we might even get into some some schadenfreude uh, with with respect to regulatory overreach or lack of creativity, uh, <laughs> along with a, a side of Libra, perhaps. Uh, lots to talk about. Um, I want to let Dave introduce himself, but uh, but has a, a career in the traditional. Um, markets and, and knows quite a bit about market infrastructure and uh, I think going to be a good conversation as we think about these next 18 months and more uh, enterprises truly coming in, dipping their toes in the water uh, and then you know becoming more actively uh, invested in crypto. So um, without further ado, uh, Dave, thank you so much for, for, for joining this um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to make this interactive as I know the last couple episodes we've done, we've had people chime in on Twitter. Um, but for starters, why, why don't we cover the basics here? So um, talk a little bit about your background yep. and um, and coin routes and kind of what led you into crypto full time. Yeah, it's kind of a cool story. I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, to talk to you know audiences about uh, the crypto space. The interesting thing is coin routes comes from a symbiosis of my background and uh, my co-founder, my son, whose idea it was, uh, Ian Weisberger. Uh, in, in many respects, I feel like deja vu because my career has been 30 plus years focused exclusively on automation and quantitative trading, mostly in equity. So I started at Morgan Stanley and built program trading systems and technology. I wouldn't trust my code anymore, but I wrote the first program trading system on Wall Street, so it was kind of fun. Uh, moved to the front office and built the global program desk at Solomon Brothers, and through corporate Pac-Man, that ultimately became Citigroup. So was there for like 14 years, and along the way, did things as diverse as architected market making electronically and built their, their systems, but also uh, ran statistical arbitrage and quantitative trading, mm-hmm. built their very first blade servers so that they, you could actually do big data and analyze it. You know, Before machine learning existed, we did very similar stuff, just more by brute force. Mm-hmm. Left there after uh, spending a year and a half running a company called Lava, which was a smart routing and algorithmic trading company. That was the first company to do smart routing and equities. And Lava is actually interesting and instructive for coin routes because it was founded on the notion that smart routing meant finding the best price, i.e. seeking liquidity and finding the best price. Now in crypto, because the market structure is different, that's actually dumb routing. So what most people do that they call smart really isn't all that smart. It's not different than smart beta. You hear that term in investment management a lot. But really, if you talk to the practitioners, most smart beta strategies are really pretty dumb. They're just, oh, I just want exposure to this asset or that asset. So there is nothing particularly intelligent about it. True smart routing, really, it has to dig deep into the market structure. 
But to understand the rest of it is after I left uh, City, I went to a company called Two Sigma. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an early employee, 240, it's like close to 2,000 now, and ended up building their wholesale market making business and ran their broker dealer. So along the way, as you can imagine, I've had a lot to do with regulators and running broker dealers and all of this stuff but have always been in the position of automating trading. So, mm -hmm. you know, going from humans to whatever. And what's really fascinating about crypto, and I did a, a talk a year ago, and people ask me about this all the time, is crypto today, the way people trade Bitcoin, I view it as incredibly ironic that an asset that is supposed to take intermediaries out of the system has more intermediation than equities or FX or options or futures. So. Clearly, there's something weird going on, and what's actually happening is people trade Bitcoin pretty much the same way they traded European equities in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So in 1995, I was sitting in Victoria Plaza in London building a global program desk for Solomon Brothers, and whenever we wanted to trade something, we'd walk over to our market makers. And the market makers were basically people who would put really wide quotes out into the market on a, a billboard system called SEAC International. And the asset managers, the big buy siders of the day, would call them up, trade, get one price, do their whole block, then go to the pub for the rest of the day because their work was done. And that's sort of how things were done in the early to mid-90s in the city of London. But what's interesting about it is that 80% of the volume traded that way. Yet, in Germany, in Italy at that point, France for sure, Sweden, Norway, etc., they all had electronic markets. And so there were prices being displayed that were being ignored or kind of loosely followed by the big market makers. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what's happening in crypto today. And so it's really interesting for me. Now, here's, here's the funny part. 10 years later, we're, <laughs> we're looking at the volume, the volume move. So yeah, that, that gives the background. You know, this question has come up before. You know, we've had uh, folks like you know Bobby Cho on from from Cumberland um, yeah. and um, and Mark from Tagomi. Just give us your sense for where um, where price discovery happens today in crypto, right? <laughs> because um, you know, it kind of feels like it's fifty fifty between OTC and, and and kind of what's flowing through to the exchanges. Although the exchanges now for Bitcoin and Ether, uh, at the very least, are, are, are have quite a bit of liquidity. Those orders ultimately do hit the books yep. of these exchanges at some point. So it's a little bit less um, wild west and, and kind of dark pool driven maybe than it was even a few years ago. Yeah. But but where are we now, right? If it still is um, uh, mostly, you know, as you said, with European equities, uh, the prices are loosely followed. Is that still the case, right? What, what's, yeah, what's I mean, it... it, it <sighs> There's basically three cross currents that are going on. There are large OTC trades that happen, uh, much less frequent now, much more likely to be more smaller pieces, relatively speaking. And even though, well, when I say less frequent, less frequent to have big OTC trades moving the market coming out of left field, although it still does happen. Uh, effectively, the other two big cross currents are liquidity that trades on BitMEX and other futures exchanges and the spot markets. I think that a generalization that we see in the data is that large moves tend to show up on the exchanges deep in the order book before anything else. Mm -hmm. Smaller moves tend to originate in the futures markets and drive into the, into the, into the cash markets or into the spot market. Interesting. And it's not always the case because I hate making gross generalizations. Mm -hmm. As someone who spent ten years running quant desks, I'll tell you if you get you know forward correlations of you know if you're right fifty five percent of the time, you're a hero as long as you can manage your money really well. So and the reality is, 
that's a generalization, but it does tend to be the case. I mean, clearly there still are situations where people are dumb enough to call four or five OTC guys uh, and, and, and move the market. There's clearly still situations where large sellers are dumb and call intermediaries, but that business is faded or is fading. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still a lot of OTC desks out there that don't have tools to trade in the market very well. Those businesses, they will all be out of business within a year or two. Uh, I've been saying this for a while. I've been, you know, at consensus, there were at least three panels I saw where sentiments like that got made. And they are definitely fading, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to trade instantaneously without committing your own capital by calling two or three of the other guys is just, it's a pure middleman function and that will eventually disappear, right? Mm-hmm. So my answer to the question is, is we see it all the time. Uh, the last three weeks has been very interesting. I mean, when if you go back to before today where we saw some volatility, when we, every time you have a period of calm that starts to establish itself in the market, you could trade 10 or $15 million of Bitcoin less than a percent all the time. Mm-hmm. And when the market gets a big spike, of course, that could go up to one and a half or even 2%. So the reality is, is the liquidity that's on the exchange is definitely representative of the same market makers that you're calling on the phone, the real ones, mm-hmm. as well as you know smaller quasi-institutional pro-trader types and then some retail. So tell, uh, tell us a little bit about coin routes and the system you've built and, mm-hmm. and exactly who it's geared towards because uh, you know you and I did a demo a couple months ago. I'm sure it's evolved even since then. Yep. Um, but it was pretty slick in terms of identifying um, uh, the kind of size of a trade, what type of slippage you would experience across different yeah. venues. Um, I think you also have toggles or at least the ability for, we have for, a lot for, of toggles. <laughs> for, 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 for folks that may be in the U.S. or in, in New York State in particular, like which venues they can actually trade on, right, even if they're less liquid than... Yeah, than Qu- CoinRouts is based on, on three patents and mm-hmm. then we've taken it from there. So the first thing that's important about CoinRouts is we filed for a distributed smart order routing complex or distributed trading engine. And what that means is we process about eight terabytes of market data mm-hmm. uh, a day. Uh, in our right now, we have one node, which is at Amazon. We will, by the end of the year, have nodes in Asia and in Europe. So those central market data nodes are doing a lot of heavy lifting. They're processing streams of data, the full book view of all the big exchanges. We're adding the ones that need to be added, etc. Now. The customers, on the other hand, get a client deployed, a local deployed instance of their router, and that gives them all the functionality, all the views, all the reporting, the ability to send orders, etc. And it works interactively with the market data node. Now, why does this matter? It means we never see wallets or keys. So you mentioned Mark from Tagomi. I've known Greg Tusar for 20 years, and he's an awesome dude, right? We kind of come at the market and cut it almost in half. Mm-hmm. Clients who want cradle-to-grave service, who want to custody, account, report, trade through one firm, that's Tagomi. Customers who want to trade through one firm but have their own accounts, mm-hmm. be able to custody where they want, be able to do their own reporting and all that stuff, that's CoinRoute. So we're kind of coming at it a different way. But the reason that's important is, is our clients don't have to trust us with mm-hmm. their wallets or keys. And that is a very important selling point. So that's patent number one. Patent number two is for a filtered, consolidated best bid and offer. So if you want to know what's the best price of Bitcoin, there, there are two things you have to decide. It's like, which exchanges do I believe in or am I eligible to trade on? Mm-hmm. So Bittrex, for example, was in one group and got left out of that group because you can't be in the US, in New York anymore. So if mm-hmm. you have a, new, a non-New York group, you have the people who will take New York accounts. 
So you could filter in the CoinRoute system by API or on our screen, you could literally pick of the 40 exchanges or so that we have which ones you want to consider. Mm -hmm. We also have filtering based on size because in Bitcoin, what's the best bid? Well, the best bid is 0.001 Bitcoin on Bitflyer USA, which by the way happens quite a bit. Maybe you want to still look at Bitflyer USA if they have something meaningful, but you really want to consider a quote for 0.001 Bitcoin. So we have the ability to filter based off of that. Mm -hmm. So that's patent two. Patent three takes into account the fact that fees matter, right? The, the, the fee differential between, for an individual client, could be as much as 20 or 30 basis points, which on a 10,000 or 11,000 or $12,000 instrument is a very large, you know, hundreds of times the bid offer spread. Yep. So we have a fee-sensitive benchmark we call real price. And what real price does is it, it, it takes a discrete quantity. So it says, let's say you want to know, you're the SEC, and you want to know how a Bitcoin ETF can be traded. So you could look at, in real time, 250 Bitcoin. What does it cost to buy it? What does it cost to sell it? At retail fees, at institutional fees, etc., And it can give you that stream. We have a display that looks at it for the futures contract. So we look at five Bitcoin with retail fees. Mm -hmm. We can show you what the real fee-adjusted bid offer spread is. That's what we use for pre-trade, right? Because that's a reasonable pre-trade benchmark. And what you'll find is that compared to where the OTC dealers quotes uh, is quite competitive. Sometimes the OTC dealers are well inside because they may have, you know, for example, if they're short and they're trying to buy and you want to sell, maybe they're the best place to go. But if they have no position, quite often it's very competitive with the OTC guys because it's basically a risk-free price. So the midpoint of that is a very, very good price for understanding what the price of the asset is. So that, that gives you an idea of what CoinRouse is based on. And then what we did is we said, okay, what's the market structure and how should you trade? So we've developed a parameterized system. It doesn't have to be that complicated. You can just hit a easy button and say, okay, I want to buy it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to buy it on a schedule. I want to buy it stretched out over the next few hours. But we have 14 different parameters to adjust how that will work. We obviously supply defaults for people who don't want to actually think about these things. But we have lots of different lots of differentiation in terms of levels of aggression and how you actually do all of this stuff. So, because you guys aren't taking custody, is this just kind of software as a service? Yeah, software taking, as a are service. You, are you taking a percentage of, of uh, Are you taking? A, is it a fee model? Well, it's it's software as a service with a fee model. With a fee model. Okay. Yeah, and the reason for that is we want to make it very low risk. Yep. So, if a fund wants to use coin routes, and we've done studies, so we did a study for one of our customers where we saved them compared to optimal routing, i.e., the, the so-called dumb routing—you know, get the whatever you can get based on what you see. Uh, we saved them about 29 basis points, about almost half a million bucks on, mm -hmm. on you know, about 160 million dollars worth of trading. Uh, and so our target is we charge five basis points, and that, my theory is simple. If we're saving people 10, 20, 30 basis points, then we charge five, they're to the good. We don't put any other fees in there, uh, and as a result, it's a very low risk thing for people to try. It, of course, does require you to set up you know, software and, and run it, but it, it makes sense to do that. That so, would so, align with our customers. So help, help under, uh, us understand uh, kind of, you mentioned the dividing line between where you guys are to go, I mean, definitely complementary services and, mm -hmm. and, and maybe some overlap, but generally speaking, um, is it going to be the large asset managers, the large funds that start to earmark some of their AUM for crypto trading maybe. that come to you? Because hypothetically, those groups would probably not want to outsource for a much higher fee all of those core capability. You know, I, I think that that's probably okay. true, but our target audience is frankly the active traders. Anyone who's trading more than a million dollars worth mm -hmm. of crypto a month, 
uh, will save money net after paying us and have a significantly more information. I mean, we see things that other people don't see because, mm -hmm. unlike uh, if you, one of the big differences in between crypto and FX, for example, or equities, is in both of those two asset classes. If you're looking at ten price levels on the bid and ten price levels on the offer, you see the market. Mm -hmm. You know where which way the book is leading. If you're in crypto, you need to look quite literally a thousand price levels on each side, which we are capturing. So we have what I call a pressure indicator that people can build out of our software that says, okay, well, where is the imbalance in the book? I mean, everyone's seen Coinbase Pro, GDAX before them, put their, their book-shaped thing, which is cool, but it's sort of like looking at, you know, driving down a road, looking through 20% of your windshield. Yep. Because their book might not be anything to do with where the overall imbalance is. You need to aggregate all the books. And so we have the ability to do that. So we have a lot of data which is useful for people as well. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we think that people who are actively trading, uh, it's a pretty good solution because it allows them to trust it. I think the bulge bracket firms, when they get into this, are not going to want to trust their assets to a firm that isn't capitalized with a B, as in billions of dollars in front of their name. Mm -hmm. And so for us as a startup, it was, it was absolutely vital for us to build a model where people didn't have to trust us with their assets. Yep. Uh, makes makes a ton of sense. So, uh, out of uh, where are you right now? Right? Is this uh, how many clients are using this? Where, where are you in the we're, life cycle we're, of the company? We're in the, in the beginnings of the hockey stick. So we have on a given day anywhere from four to six clients using the system. We on a given day we've traded as much as thirty million dollars through the system in one mm -hmm. day. Uh, we traded it obviously as little as zero, and there are people are like some some Sundays no one trades. Uh, you know, average probably is around four, five, six million dollars of value through the system. We, on average, any given day, it's trading anywhere from twelve to twenty different currency pairs. Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting about us is we cover right now we're over two hundred and fifty different pairs mm -hmm. that we support. We add them on a day's notice if people want them. They're easy to add. It's just a question of we don't add everything because there's a lot of overhead and collecting thousands of price levels even on illiquid coins. So you know, we add them when people want them. Uh, we're just in the process of getting that. We're going to announce within two weeks a strategic investment from a large client of ours. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we announce that, then that kind of breeds more trust, et cetera, et cetera. So we're in that kind of uh, hockey stick level. We're way past the PowerPoint level though. You know, I don't sure. even bother with PowerPoints. We just do demos and we show people that it works. But we're we're out there and we're signing people up, so that's where we are. So that's I mean that's a it's a billion you know maybe a little bit more annualized uh, in terms of trading volume. Mm -hmm. Still a very very small fraction uh, yeah. of, of of what's actually that's uh, right. you know getting traded. So you know Bitcoin on a given day is um, several billion just by itself, right? Yep. Uh, leaving out you know the the other assets. Um, how much uh, how much volume do you think is going to move through systems like? Coin routes within the next 18, 24 months, right? So I know that there are other folks that are working on these types of tools. Yep. Um, institutional investors have to prove best bid and all, you know, basically you build an order, best execution of these yep. orders. Um, and that traditionally has been a bit of a holdup, right? Yep. So it's, it's, it's what's the reference data? That you're using to, to you know mark your book. Yeah. Um, how do you do custody? That's kind of getting solved by a different group of folks, and then it's best ex uh, execution. Yep. Um, it, it still seems like a very small percentage of the market We're, that is we, actually we are, filled with best execution. I think that, that look at, at the end of the day, I don't know the time frame. 
I can remember, and I'm sorry for the for the storytelling, but it's actually very relevant. So I can remember because I'm old. Uh, the people in the audience of this will probably have to go back to the history books to remember something called the crash of 1987. Mm -hmm. But after the crash of 87, when the market dropped 25 percent, which the crypto folks is like, oh, okay, fine, that's Tuesday, but. You know, we dropped 25%, shut down markets all around the world. There was a commission investigating what happened. And because I built the first program trading system, I was one of the people that had to testify. So I was in a room with a bunch of technologists who basically, they were all convinced within a few years, maybe two, three years, everything would trade electronically. Mm -hmm. And I'm like shaking my head saying, yeah, it could, but there's a lot of money stopping it from trading electronically. And you know, it actually ended up taking 19 years from that day before everything was trading electronically as far as that goes. So I don't know about 12 to 24 months, but I can tell you that when the markets are evolved to the point where institutions are, you know, don't think that it's a frontier anymore, mm -hmm. uh, it'll be 80% will trade electronically. Yep. Which is right now, I think if we're, if we're lucky, it's 20. Interesting. Um, what, what are these systems, um, what could the impact be for these types of trading tools on the fees, the make or taker fees that the exchanges themselves charge? Because right now, they're still making money hand over fist from a predominantly retail audience. They, they might have large market makers they work with that get preferred terms, but there hasn't, uh, other than competition amongst the uh, exchanges for market share, there hasn't seemed to be that much competition on um, on fees, yeah. Fee this sure. this brings that to another level because it's not a want; it's a need. Yep. Um, to execute at the lowest price. So, um, how 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 do you think about the impact that this has on the Binance's, the Coinbase's of the world at scale? Uh, just the move to electronic trading, or is it a wash? Because at that point, there's going to be so much more well, volume uh, that I, it evens out. I think it's really interesting. Just just. Taking those two examples shows you is different. I mean, Binance, with, if you trade with BNB, uh, their rack rate is one-sixth Coinbase's rack rate. So Binance has already proven that when you cut fees and make it economic, mm -hmm. uh, you gain volume. So, you know, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I'd say on a blended basis, I would expect what will happen in crypto is exactly what happened in other asset classes, which is more or less on a blended basis, mm -hmm. costs will drop by about 90%. So I think one tenth wow. of today's fees will be there, but at the same time, I think volumes will, and, and, will and jump by, by 10x. And that so might not, that, but that might not necessarily trickle down to the retail, uh, right? Because you can keep fees. I don't know. Charles Schwab and E-Trade, you know what they like. If you, if you look at the commission rates that were being charged, they dropped the same. I mean, as electronification happened in every market, two things we saw, and it's actually kind of interesting. But in in all cases, uh, you can go through it. You can look at it. And you can see physically commission rates dropping and fees and other sorts of things dropping, except for market data, which is a totally different kettle of fish, but blended fees dropping more or less by 90%. But when electronification happens, volumes increased basically also by 90%. So the net amount of wallet didn't really go down that much. Mm -hmm. It was just done differently, which is, by the way, you know, the big news story this week, Deutsche Bank you know, laying off equities. I mean, you know, they cluelessly are blaming it on competition to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. And they're ignoring the competition that they got from Virtu and Citadel yeah. and, you know, other small, you know, GTX, other, you know, smaller electronic firms where they were the ones who were eating the lunch. They were effectively the termites in their superstructure, right? And so, yeah, profit margins come down for someone whose model is based on that. So will exchanges, will business models need to adapt? 
Absolutely. Will volumes go up and will the asset class become more attractive to people as a result? Absolutely. Yep. Is one of the things that will drive that the ability of, of technology such as we're doing at CoinRoutes and others are doing? Absolutely. Is it necessary? Yes. Is it sufficient? No. There are other things that have to happen. Other ways of doing, you know, pan exchange custody, for example, because one of the problems that people have is, interestingly enough, a lot of the consumers, a lot of the traders of Bitcoin are not price sensitive, which is really weird if you think about it. You know, they, they're, but they're more, more concerned about, I'm not going to, you know, give you mine until I get the cash and then the escrow changes hands and all of that. Whereas in other asset classes, people don't worry about that. There's trusted providers. Once you're in with trusted providers, you do it what's most economically efficient. That will happen too, but that's another one of the reasons why it might be stickier on the price side for a while. You know, it was interesting that one of the first things that you brought up when, when you walked in, uh, we are talking about things that, that we could cover, um, was on the regulatory front, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Masari, our, our whole day, we think about the SEC, right? And all these kind of long tail of token projects yep. um, that are, are trying to figure out how to operate in the U.S. and kind of release these tokens. Um, it doesn't feel like, you know, your day-to-day -day is so much focused on the SEC. It, it, it feels like it's more about the CFTC and, and the rest of the alphabet soup. Where, um, where do you get frustrated from a regulatory standpoint? I think that, well, there's... I'm going to try to get you in trouble here. I yeah, that's okay. I, 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 you know, some of my <laughs> friends down in Washington know my feelings. I don't hide them. I was talking with one of the commissioners a couple weeks ago, and I basically told him point blank that when we were specifically looking at VC investors and we just closed an investment round, maybe we'll raise some more money at the end of the year, but we're not actively killing ourselves for investment, that one of the first things that every investor said to us is you have to establish an overseas subsidiary. Mm -hmm. In fact, you might want to move overseas. And when you tell people, I told Congressman, uh, one of the congressmen who wrote, who was a co-sponsor of the Token Taxonomy Act and commissioner, one of the commissioners this, their antennas perked up. It's like, okay, we know you, we know you don't want to do that, and so that's kind of a bad thing. Well, that's the reality. I mean, I, I look at you know, your article yesterday on, on the, uh, the, the Grayscale and, then ha and a trading strategy for that, and I've known about this. I have friends who are doing that strategy for the last year, but mm -hmm. you know, okay. But the fact is, why would we have a regulatory regime that effectively means that only rich people can do a strategy? And just uh, for, for those that are not yet subscribers, unfortunately, to our, our research newsletter, you're referring to a piece that I wrote uh, yep. on, on Grayscale's investment trust, which is its own different animal. Yep. Um, but in short, accredited investors are able to create new shares in the trust and then gain liquidity through OTC markets, which is not an ETF, but they can do so after a year and a day using something called Rule 144, and essentially sell to retail investors at a 35% premium to what the underlying value is. Yep. Um, and then folks can recycle this kind of year in, year out, if they're accredited and they can actually go through that process. Right. I think for, for many investors, no one thought that this could have possibly persisted for this long. Yep. At least I didn't. Uh, at that level, but but that premium has, has has existed for quite some time. Yeah. So, uh, but that's that is a good example. Right. But the point that I'm making here is, you know, the SEC has been intransigent on the Bitcoin ETF, and yeah, there are some reasons. Some of the people who have proposed ETF structures have done it poorly. I, I you know, I have a big problem 
with the notion that you should rely on market maker quotes to tell you where the NAV is because mm -hmm. market makers, and I was one for 10 years, so I can tell you from a first-hand point of view, my quote is going to reflect my position and it shouldn't. The price, it should reflect the quote that's being used by the public should be the full supply and demand, not mm -hmm. individual market maker positions. But be that as it may, the fact is with our technology at least, you can see far more in the transparency of the underlying for a Bitcoin ETF mm -hmm. than you can for gold or silver, not forget natural gas or oil, I mean significantly more transparency. So the fact that the SEC keeps saying no because they don't like the way the market structure works for what they recognize to be an underlying spot retail asset, they're not allowing the ETF, means that people are either forced to buy things like the Grayscale Trust at a very large premium, which of course means eventually they lose money, or worse, they go overseas, or worse still, they take on risks that they don't understand by trading futures. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that, that frustrates me. I think that's just a really bad set of decision making. I understand why they started that way, but at this point, I think those those reasons are gone. Certainly, if you have the right technology, those reasons are gone. I mean, that's that's more kind of macro in scope. Is there anything in particular that affects your business uh, from a regulatory standpoint? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> that 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 um, might not be as obvious. Well, as yeah. I mean, I, the, the single most obvious thing is people ask us why don't we set up our own accounts. Why don't we handle customer funds and do it for them? Because we can do it for ourselves and we can show how the technology mm -hmm. works. And the answer is... Which is basically Tagomi's model. Yeah, I don't have $10 million in my back pocket to go through 50 or let's say a critical mass of 25 states, mm -hmm. uh, MTL licenses, federal money transfer licenses, banking charters, uh, CFTC, you know, everything. If you look at what the money that was spent to invest in uh, some of these businesses that looks mm -hmm. sort of and feels sort of similar to ours, it's an enormous percentage on regulatory. So we don't want to do that, so we're staying as a software company, and that definitely limits our flexibility. There's no two ways about it. Uh, the other thing is, is when you look at what the regulators do, the, the whole thing with Bittrex, knock them out of New York, or you know what's going on, well, what does that mean? It means that we, you know, our headquarters is California, so for us it's not that big of a deal, but there's exchanges as US citizens that we can't model. So we need to set up an overseas subsidiary to get accounts be able to verify that our technology works with those exchanges. So mm -hmm. that's a frustration. I mean, yeah, there's ways around it, and we have found those ways around it, but it's frustrating because it, it effectively means that you have less professional people. And my largest frustration has, has to do with potential clients. Mm -hmm. So there are, there probably are hundreds, but I've talked to about a dozen broker-dealers that would love to offer agency trading services for crypto to trade, buy and sell Bitcoin and some tokens, etc. And they have been frustrated because the SEC and FINRA isn't going to let them do it. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but if you think about what does that mean? That means that people who want to hire a trusted agent have to look outside the broker-dealer community. Outside the broker-dealer community, people don't have a clue about best execution. They don't have a clue about the need for segregating customer assets. They don't understand fiduciary responsibilities. I mean, like I've had in the series 24 and everything on down, the alphabet soup of all this stuff, and the stuff you have to learn about, you may not trust Wall Street, but the alternative to non-Wall Street is what we had back before the Great Depression. And so by a matter of complete unintended consequence, what FINRA and the SEC are doing is forcing people to use the exact archetype of agents 
that they stopped and put out of business before the Great Depression because they're stopping broker-dealers who at least have the ethos and follow the principles of Best X. They're not letting them establish that as a business, which to me is absolutely irresponsible and counterproductive. So, yes, you want to get me in trouble, that's cool. But well, I, I have the, said the, this the, personally the, to Robert Cook, well, who the, runs the, the, and he well, knows the, I feel this way. The, the most interesting thing about what you said, um, as a software company, you have to set up a subsidiary just to get the data feeds? No, not to get the data feeds, but to be able to, because we offer algorithmic training solutions. So let's say a customer mm -hmm. of mine comes to me and says, I want to trade with OKEX. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you use coin routes, you don't have to actually have multiple exchange accounts. That's sort of a myth. Let's say you wanted to trade on OKEX. I'm picking them because you have to be non-US you know, sure. to, to mm -hmm. have that account. So what do we need to do? We need to find a friendly customer who will let us experiment with their accounts to test to make sure our algorithms perform as we expect them to perform. One of the interesting things about crypto exchanges are there are nuances to trading with every exchange. We know more about the inner workings of the APIs at multiple of these exchanges than the exchange people do themselves. I'm, I have actually had to educate the biz dev people at multiple exchanges about, you know, this exchange, if you get a cancel back message back, you could still get a execution subsequent to that. And here's why, and here's the sequencing. So we have to get into that level of detail. Mm -hmm. To do that, there's no test systems in these exchanges. You have to use your own money. So we use ours when we can, but we have to get, and it doesn't take a lot of money. I mean, you mm -hmm. can trade for a few hundred bucks, of, you know, fractions of, of whatever, but you need to get that nuance done. So yes, yeah. we need to do that. And so that's been somewhat frustrating. That's why we were set up overseas uh, to do it. And that's the reason. Interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, looking ahead to the next, you know, year, couple of years, wh what do you think are going to be some of the biggest changes in market structure in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum? And, and will there be really anything to pay attention to outside of those two assets uh, from an institutional standpoint or, or for the foreseeable future? Is that really where the lion's share of the action is? Well, A, yes, it's the where the lion's share of the action is. B, however, uh, one of the things we find is that what happens in, in Bitcoin trickles down towards Ethereum and moves down towards your favorite XRP and others. It's the shit uh, waterfall. Yeah, it's, it, we'll call it whatever you'd like to call it. The fact is, is I'm actually writing a piece about altcoins. It, it, it perturbs me that people lump everything other than Bitcoin and Ethereum into altcoins. Well, the reality is there's wide differences, not just between them, but just in terms of what they are. Mm -hmm. Some of them are literal altcoins. So, you know, altcoins, Litecoin is an altcoin. It's basically, what is it? It's, you know, it, it is trying to be a, a store of value like Bitcoin is. That's the only thing it can do, right? There's, you know, smaller ones like Bitgreen, which is trying to be a environmentally safe, you know, version of Bitcoin. Then, you know, but, but that's a small percentage. Most of what are altcoins are tokens invented supposedly to support an ecosystem. And the vast majority of those have no ecosystem to support. Mm -hmm. So there are these tokens looking for a use case, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, BNB, which has done very well because there is a use case, mm -hmm. right? So there's a use case in an ecosystem. So when people look at altcoins and they look at the group, the ones that never should have existed in the first place because you could have used Bitcoin or Ethereum or Stellar or XRP or some other existing public blockchain inside your use case, mm -hmm. yeah, those ones are on the slow road to nowhere, right? And they keep going down. Bitcoin rally doesn't matter. The ones that actually have an ecosystem that are developing, that's relevant, right? You yeah. know, because that's the business. And so what we find, however, is the market structure of those altcoins 
is remarkably similar to the way that Bitcoin and Ethereum traded a couple of years ago, which is to say wider spreads, no coordination. And that's why we actually think that that trend will, will be dropping because we can show people tremendous benefits in trading mm -hmm. with knowledge of the market uh, in altcoins. Now, the reason why there's a bigger benefit in altcoins to using software like ours is because in Bitcoin, there are market makers who you're going to lose dollars, tens of dollars, and in rare cases, hundreds of dollars mm -hmm. in Bitcoin, which is still, you know, a percent or fractions of a percent. In altcoins, the difference between multiple exchanges <laughs> can be significantly greater than that. And so keeping yourselves in line, being aware, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And so we think that, that the technology is really important for that. And, and by the way, the market is evolving. Like every month, things get a little bit better, a little bit tighter, but it's, there's a little long way to go. Well, there is a long way to go, so we'll have you on again, uh, and and uh, hopefully in a few months we'll we'll be able to talk about the next uh, major topics of conversation, which I'm sure are probably going to be some uh, major money managers or or uh, hedge funds or or maybe even larger yep. uh, asset managers moving into the space. It's my prediction. I think we're both betting on that pretty heavily. Uh, have a ton of skin in the game there, but. Mm -hmm. Um, in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on. I think uh, hopefully uh, our, our users uh, learned a lot here. And uh, just as a reminder, we are going to be working with BlockWorks Group uh, going forward. So this is live stream today. We're going to continue to do live streams, but these are going to be packaged up into a nice, neat little box um, for a podcast that you can consume anywhere that you'd like to listen uh, after the fact. So thanks again for tuning in. Dave, thank you, and uh, we'll see you again real soon for Unqualified Opinions. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.